You're listening to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In recent years, there has been growing talk about a potential link between neurodiversity and kink. For the most part, the evidence has been pretty anecdotal, mostly consisting of folks who frequent kink and BDSM spaces, observing that there seems to be a higher percentage of neurodiverse folks compared to other settings. However, we're starting to see scientific research that backs those observations up. And that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. We're going to dive into a recent study published in the Journal of Sex Research that looks at how neurodiversity, specifically in the form of autistic traits, is linked to engaging in the kink subculture of pup play. In addition to exploring the findings from this study, we're going to consider what it is specifically about kink that might be appealing to neurodiverse folks, why there's been a taboo around studying the sexuality of neurodiverse persons, and more. I am joined by Liam Wignall, a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Brighton. He specializes in research on kink and BDSM, looking at the impact of internet and community engagement on identity formation. His book, Kinky in the Digital Age, explores how kinky gay and bisexual men navigate kink in contemporary times with an in-depth analysis of the pup play subculture. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Finding the right toy for you can elevate both solo and partnered sex. From petite to potent vibrators, the perfect harness and dildo combos, thoughtfully designed anal toys, and BDSM options ranging from basic to luxurious, Earth & Salt offers a curated selection of sex toys, accessories, and gender expression gear to help you access your pleasure your way. Earth & Salt handpicks every item they offer, focusing on trusted, tempting toys and body-safe options, from a mix of well-known brands and smaller businesses. Their vendor roster is always at least 50% brands owned by women, trans, NB, and BIPOC folks. Ready to find your next favorite? Check the show notes for the link or visit Earth and Salt at earthandsaltshop.com and use my last name, Laymiller, as the discount code for 15% off your next purchase. That's earthandsaltshop.com. Take a walk on the kinky side with Beducated. Their library of online courses features more than 100 hours of content to help you level up your intimate life and explore new sexual possibilities. Their courses can be completed individually or with a partner, and you can learn about a ton of topics, including kink and BDSM. For example, their Dominance and Submission course runs through everything you need to know from consent communication and negotiation to ideas and things to try to aftercare. It's full of practical guidelines to help you and your partner get exactly what you want. The content is created by experts, and there's so much to learn. Try all of their courses today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 60% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymiller, as the coupon code. There's also a 14-day money-back guarantee. Check the show notes for the link, and be sure to use my last name to claim your discount. Enjoy! Hi, Liam, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. 
So we're going to be talking about a recent study that you published on the link between neurodivergence and pup play. And I think a good starting point is with a couple of definitions so that my listeners are perfectly clear on what we're talking about. So let's start first with neurodivergence. This is a term that has been around for decades, but it's really only been in the last couple of years that we've started hearing it all the time and seeing it pop up everywhere. So what does it mean to be neurodivergent and how common is this in the population? So it's kind of a capture-all term used to describe different ways of thinking, feeling, experiencing, and generally kind of moving through the world. And in the paper, we focus specifically on one type of neurodivergence of autism in terms of kind of how common amongst the population. The Centers for Disease Control estimates it's roughly one in 44 American children are autistic or kind of meet the criteria for it, and roughly kind of one in every 100 people for more conservative estimates. Some of the interesting things related to these kind of labels and definitions, and you talk about kind of where we're seeing more examples of it, there seems to be an increased recognition that it's people are witnessing neurodivergent traits and people kind of chatting about neurodivergence on social media and sort of thinking, oh, that kind of describes me. And there's a huge range of different traits, characteristics, etc., which are encompassed kind of under the neurodivergence umbrella. So I think there's an element of, oh, that kind of applies to me, but then the other behaviours don't. So there's kind of a really interesting thing at the moment in terms of people identifying with some of the characteristics. The other thing in terms of the label of autistic or being labelled as neurodivergent as a, from the medical framework, it's quite difficult to get the label of autism, the clinical classification. So there seems to be kind of more examples of people self-diagnosing as autistic or neurodivergence or neurospicy is kind of a, another term um, related to it. So we're seeing it more, and I think partly due to social media and just maybe a general acceptance around what it means to be neuroatypical. Yeah. And that lines up with kind of my observation of this as well. I hear a lot of people talking about it online. It, it's a term that seems to mean different things to different people. We often hear ADHD falling under the neurodivergence umbrella. So it can mean different things to different people. And that's going to affect the prevalence estimates, you know, depending on how broadly, how, you know, sort of inclusive this term is of different types of people. But thanks for sharing that. So the other thing we need to define is pup play. So generally speaking, what does pup play look like and why are some people into it? This is more my area of expertise. On the paper, we collaborated with an expert in, in the field of autism and neurodivergence. So I hope I did some justice. Pup play is a kink activity where individuals sort of imitate the the behaviours that one might associate with young dogs. So where it's basic form, individuals engage in tactile behaviours like kind of nuzzling up to somebody, they might be on all fours, they might mimic up other dog-like behaviours like barking, biting, scratching, licking. For some individuals, it can be a predominantly social activity that when they engage in pup play, it's with other pups or other people and they focus on the playful elements of it. So when you see people engaging in pup play in, in social forms, they are interacting with others, they're kind of engaging in tactile or kind of wrestle-like behaviours. They may do things like chasing a ball or playing tug of war, that kind of stuff. So that's kind of one of the extremes, the social end. And then for another kind of minority of people, pup play is predominantly a sexual activity that getting into this kind of 
pub play mentality where when a hood goes on, your vision is restricted. And when you wear certain kind of forms of pub play related gear, you might start to feel sexually aroused through engaging in, in the activity. It's an extension in both those camps. It's kind of an extension of submission and domination, which is quite common within kink more generally. And pub play is an extension of this kind of submissive role. So when people are engaging in the sexual elements of pub play, it's normally within this submissive mindset. The majority of people I've spoken to tend to see pub play as both of these kind of social sexual practices. So depending on the setting, who they're playing with, their mentality, it can shift from the social to the sexual or kind of operate a a nice space within. One of the interesting things that I've noticed about pub play is that it's provided a gateway into kink communities and kink subcultures more generally. So I mentioned kind of the, the playful aspect and the submission domination component. If you're engaging in pub play and you're with somebody and there's a particular activity that you don't want to do, you bark and you walk, you crawl away. It's very playful and it allows people to explore different kinks in kind of this, this playful mantra. It differs from some of the older examples that you see of pub play. So when I started collecting data on pub play, it was in 2015. And before that, there were kind of references to it in the literature, but it was more about dog play. It was more humiliation. It was an extension of kind of slave rather than this submissive playfulness. That's kind of word vomit related to what pub play is. <laughs> well, as you were describing that, it reminded me of a conversation I had with Stephanie Gerlich previously on the show, where she talked about how kink is always relational, but only sometimes sexual. And I think that's important for people to keep in mind is that kink isn't always about sex. And as you mentioned, for some people, pup play is much more of a social activity. For some, it's much more of a sexual activity. For some people, it goes back and forth, right? So it always falls on on a spectrum. And I, I just think that that's important to highlight for challenging some misconceptions that people have about kink, because it's not always about the sexual aspect. So Before you conducted your study on the link between neurodivergence and pup play, why did you think there might be an association between these things? So in other words, what was the reason behind hypothesizing a link between autistic traits and kink just in general? So there were several reasons. Alongside my general research into pup play, I was conducting research on kink more generally and attending events up and down the UK. I was engaging with different social media platforms related to kink. So I was really immersed myself in these different communities and seeing people engaging kink in different ways. During London Fetish Week, they had a, an event specifically designed for pups, catering to pups. And it was in the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, which is kind of a, an old establishment, old gay establishment in, in London. So it's kind of weird not seeing a drag show there and just seeing pups on the floor. And I noticed kind of unique interactions by the people at the venue that they were engaging in behaviours that you wouldn't, that I, I wasn't witnessing at the other events or certainly not as much. So in terms of the social interactions, when two pups were kind of up on all fours, not in that kind of pup mentality um, or, or engaging in pup play, they would stand quite close together. There would be other individuals who would be wearing earphones, um, headphones, or kind of sitting away from other people. And just kind of the breaking of 
stereotypical kind of social norms and social cues. I spoke to some of the people who I was, I have connections with. And it was them that told me, well, you know, a lot of the people in the room have autism or have anxiety or have, or on neurodivergent. And the more I started to speak to people about kind of the connections between put play and autism and attending these different events, the more certain I was that if I did research on this, I would find a link. I wanted to conduct research on this to explore this idea through kind of a, a lens of social model of disability that the idea that these individuals who are engaging in in put play who may be neurodivergent we should view this as an opportunity for these neurodivergent people to engage in an activity in a fun way it wasn't through uh, a minority lens or anything like that i just thought let's explore this in the same way that my original motivation for the pub play research was i want to document this behavior rather than pathologize this activity so i spoke with a few more people and kind of said i was going to do this project what do you think of it and generally there was positive reviews my main area is kink and my research area isn't about neurodivergence. So I collaborated with a colleague, explained my hypothesis that these were the behaviours I was witnessing. These were kind of some of the interactions. And Richard Mosey, the co-author, was like, that sounds like neurodivergence. We should do this project. So that's kind of where it came about. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And it's something that, you know, when I saw your paper come out, I was like, that makes a lot of sense. And we covered it on the blog and I knew I wanted to talk to you and do a podcast episode about it as well. So you talked a little bit about the reasons for why you hypothesized the link here. So what did you find in the study itself? What was the link between autistic traits and pup play? How were these things related? And was it related to taking on specific roles within pup play? So I know as you described pup play, you talked about people playing the role of the pup, but there's also the handler role in the, you know, sort of dominant submissive dynamic. So tell us how these things were related. So because of the issues I said earlier on around people struggling to get a formal diagnosis, we knew that we needed to come at this from a different way. And we created an online survey, which we administered internationally on a whole bunch of different components related to pub play. And one of the questions we asked or gave participants was the autism spectrum quotient short form. This is often used as a screening tool to see if a diagnosis is needed later on. So we wanted to be very, very clear. We weren't diagnosing participants and we're not saying that these individuals if they score highly on this scale, are autistic, this is a screening tool that is used and is in likely indicative. So we're kind of careful in the paper when we talk about the scale and, and any claims from that. We administered the scale to participants and it was 413 that completed the scale, including pups, handlers, and kind of roles in between with a median age of like 31 years old. So you know, a middle-aged sample. The main standout when we sat down and analysed the data was related to how high some of the individuals scored. In the general population, one in 44 individuals will score above 65. And a score of above 65 is likely indicative of autism. In our sample, it was one in two participants scored above 65, above this kind of cutoff points. So going from one in 44 to one in two, we already thought, my goodness, we've got a paper. We just need to figure out how we can kind of contextualize this. I expected somewhere in between one in 44 to one in two, but certainly not one in two. There's also a kind of more stringent cutoff. And even then, when we were kind of conservative in our estimates, it ends up being roughly one in three participants scored above that cutoff. So 
the initial thing that we found was a high preponderance of individuals with autistic traits. That's kind of one of the key take-home within our sample. And there's limitations in terms of the sample, which I'm sure we'll cover, but just to kind of ask that caveat. Then we started to see how this score on the AQS, on the autism spectrum quotient short form, how it kind of correlated with other questions within the survey. And just kind of some take-home things. If an individual scored higher on the AQ score, they were more likely to only engage in one sort of role within pup play. They were more likely to only be a handler, only be a pup, and not engage in these kind of shifting behaviours. Which makes sense if part of some of the features of autism is an enjoyment of rules, an enjoyment of kind of particular labels and roles to shift from pup to handler and kind of from submission to domination and, and all this stuff in between, it makes sense that people who score highly on this scale would not want to shift between the two roles. We also found that individuals who scored highly on the AQ scale had a more restricted sociosexuality. We didn't really know what we'd find in terms of other aspects because there's a general lack of research on autism and sex, never mind autism and, and kink specifically. So that was kind of you know why we included things like the sociosexuality scale of permissiveness or agreeableness towards casual sex. The individuals who scored higher on this were more likely to have a restricted sociosexuality, so less kind of permissiveness towards casual sex, which again potentially makes sense if we know that individuals with autism are often kind of report difficulties navigating relationships, including sexual relationships, sexual um, hookups, etc. So again, kind of makes sense. And the individuals were more likely to if they scored highly on the scale, to not belong to a pup community and to kind of push away this idea of a, a sense of a pup identity. The last one was surprising to me until kind of myself and Rachel and our colleague Mark had a chat about how can we understand this. And Rachel indicated that autistic individuals are already marginalised within society. If they're engaging in an activity that is marginalised within society, i.e. kink, and within the kink community, pup play is often marginalised because of the focus on like the playfulness and the breaking of rules. So there might be a, a wanting from the participants to eschew some of these kind of more marginalised labels. Like, I'm already marginalised, I don't need more marginalisation, so I don't have a strong attachment to this pup identity, which was surprising at first because I thought it might have been a way of kind of solidifying a role within a community or within a subculture. I think they're kind of some of the, the main take-home messages. Yeah, it's so fascinating, and especially the prevalence, the one in two people demonstrating autistic traits according to the scale that you administered. As you mentioned, yes, there are limitations of this study, just as there are limitations of every study. You know, We're not necessarily dealing with a representative sample here, so we wouldn't be able to just extrapolate those findings to the broader population. But, you know, it certainly seems to be indicative that there is something that's going on here. So, what is it specifically about pup play that might be appealing to people with autistic traits? To what degree is it about just kind of having the structure rules that makes it easier to navigate things if you might have difficulty navigating social interactions more broadly? Is it about the tactile experience? What is it that's appealing to people with autistic traits? It's a shame that we don't have the quality of data yet. Um, and we're doing a follow up study, which is undergoing ethical approval, where we are seeking to recruit individuals who engage in pub play, who are autistic, to try and kind of tap into that, to give some insight based on the ethnographic observations and the 
conversations I've had with participants, we've tried to identify some potential rationales. And I think one of the ones you mentioned around roles and what is expected of individuals engaged in play is really appealing for A, individuals who are autistic, and B, just people potentially new to kink as well. There's no clear expectation of how one engages in pub play. But at the same time, there are broad kind of guidelines that you can follow. You can kind of, if you think that's a rule, then you can follow that rule. And nobody's going to tell you that you're doing pub play wrong. Nobody's going to tell you that you can't wear a mask all the time or a hood, or you can't mix pub play with other kink activities like rubber, leather, lycra. So I think both the flexibility that you can make pub play your own, but also the rules of you go down on all fours, you don't do human interactions, and that you can follow these rules, that kind of flexible rules is appealing. I think the idea of adopting a role in terms of engaging as a pup or engaging as a handler and the expectations that come with it, such as if you're a handler, you look out for whoever you're handling, that you've got all these pups on the floor, you make sure that none of them are hurt. And if they're engaging in the activity quite intensely, you you check in on them, you make sure they're watered. You have that kind of role there. I also think that, as you mentioned, kind of the tactility is quite has a pull for these individuals. When individuals engage in pub play, one of the first things I often see people talking about and purchasing and kind of has importance to them is their pub hood that they can customise, can be made of kind of various materials. When individuals kind of describe putting the pub hood on, it covers their ears, it restricts the vision and almost kind of encourages you to feel like a pup. And I think just the reduction of kind of sensory information might be enjoyable, might be useful for neurodivergent people, for autistic people. Yeah, so I think the tactility has real appeal for individuals. I think the final thing is, and it was the thing that I witnessed most when I was at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern at this kind of pub event, the sheer range of individuals who were there in terms of genders, ethnicities, sexual orientations, body types, levels of kind of neurodivergence or Uh, neurotypicalness. It's a real kind of melting pot of different individuals, the pub play subculture, the pub community. So I think that the acceptance that the pub community often kind of affords to individuals who come in is another appeal. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it in terms of this being an activity that is structured, but it's also flexible, right? So it makes sense that it would be appealing in that you've got a few rules you need to follow, but then you can just kind of do your own thing. And also there's that tactile component and then the acceptance component, right? So it it all adds up to me, but I can't wait to see what the results of your follow-up study are to see if there are other reasons. And, you know, as with any kink, different people might be drawn to it for different reasons, but I think those are all things that make sense to me. Something else you mentioned that you found in your study was that neurodivergence was related to having a more restricted sociosexual orientation, basically meaning that they tend to see sex and emotion and love and things like that as going together and there's less comfort with casual sex. So I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about that because I wouldn't have thought about the link between sociosexuality and autistic traits, but as you were describing it, earlier, it it made sense to me because there is going to be more rules or structure to sexual behavior when it occurs in a relational context as opposed to a casual context. Anything else you would say on that? 
Yeah. Although I do feel like I'm talking to somebody who's published more on sociosexuality than I have. One of the reasons we kind of included it was in chatting with my colleague, Rachel, we tried to identify other easy things that we can put in the scale and other things that might kind of logically make sense. Like we, the survey was on broader elements of put play, but we kind of really wanted to tap into this possibility for neurodivergence and some overlaps. So we talked about autism and sexuality in general and logically tried to think about it. If autistic individuals have or describe difficulties in social situations because they can't pick up on some signals because they aren't able to, and this is, you know, for some individuals, they can't pick up on the social cues, they have difficulty with kind of double entendres or alternative meanings. How might these individuals kind of feel in a sexual context where all those cues are there, but now you've got to add sexual undertones to it? And it was partly due to my research on sexual consent that made me think that this could be something to explore because I published on sexual consent where I demonstrated the difficulties of students talking about sexual consent could be implicit, explicit, verbal, non-verbal. There's a whole bunch of different cues to pick up on and that every individual I spoke about to said that, yeah, you know, I can broadly pick up on them. And then when we explored it further, it turns out that they all describe problems with it. So I wanted to apply some of that stuff to this paper to think about how autistic individuals might kind of navigate and explore sex. And one of the ways that I thought might be useful would be to include the sociosexuality scale. And I think it just comes down to, for the individuals who scored highly on the scale and reports a, a more restricted sociosexuality, my potential insight, it can take a fair amount of time to kind of develop a sexual connection with somebody, a social connection with somebody, to learn what they like, learn what they don't like, a lot of kind of cognitive effort, a lot of potential for things to go wrong and learn from them. And that isn't really reflective of casual sex. That's more sort of short-term relationships potentially, or um, certain friends of benefits. I wonder if that they are potentially more appealing for autistic individuals than the one-off sexual encounters where you have to do a lot of interpretation and non-communicating about kind of what you want because generally we don't like communicating outright about sex and saying this is what I want this is what I don't want I consent to this I don't consent to this that isn't how sex is generally done it's a lot of kind of non-verbal implicit cues which research says autistic individuals are not hugely able to engage with successfully but then so is the general population so yeah I thought it'd be something interesting and it's in the follow-up interviews when I'm exploring pub play and kink, I think I'll be wanting to ask questions around sexuality in general as well, because as, as I say, there's a significant lack of research in that area that doesn't infantilize um, or pathologize autistic in- individuals related to sex. That's normally what the, the research positionality is. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about this, I couldn't help but think about just how little we know about autism in general and its relation to sexuality. You know, there's almost no research out there on it. It seems like it's a pretty taboo topic in the field. And it may change, you know, as the term neurodivergence has grown more mainstream and people are more aware of it, you know, that might start to seep into the research and people might start studying it more. But do you have any thoughts on just sort of why the link between autism and sexuality has been so taboo? And how do we go about breaking that taboo? Because it's an area where we definitely need a lot more research. I think partly it's a lack of awareness. I only started thinking about this area when I was teaching 
a sexualities course a few years ago and I had the BDSM Society of the University sitting in my audience and it was a lecture on pornography and they came up at the end and we, we were chatting away about different things and a few of them disclosed that they were also autistic and we started to have an interesting conversation about porn and they disclosed to me, there was two students in, in particular, they said, oh, I, I don't watch pornography and the other one said, oh, no, neither do I. And they kind of both then looked at each other sort of trying to work out what the other person was thinking. It was like, but what about erotica? And they were both like, oh, yeah, we love erotica because, you know, you can create your own worlds and you can do it at your own speed. You don't feel like you're watching somebody else. And I'd never thought about that before, that the medium of porn might change based on neurodivergence. It was only kind of within that moment I started to, as a learning opportunity, think differently and ask different questions. And kind of, I reached out to these students more and we kind of had more, more conversations about it. And then approaching colleagues who do research into autism and seeing what they thought. And the same thing happened, that they were so kind of focused in the autism world, they'd not thought about the overlap with sex. So I think number one, it's kind of a, a lack of awareness. And then secondly, I think it's just a problem that we have within society around different groups of people that we tend to desexualize. And whether that's because it's easier, it makes us feel better. I think of kind of older individuals in care homes or in assisted living or a whole bunch of kind of different environments where we desexualize these individuals. And we know from research that people can go on having sex healthy sexual lives throughout their life. Same for individuals with various kind of mental health illnesses. We tend to desexualize and focus on other things. And I don't know if it's the assumption that, well, this person is, I don't know, has these other characteristics, sex is going to be in the back of their mind, but it's a primal urge. It's a, it's a fundamental aspect of the majority of people's lives. And I start my, my sexuality unit with sex features in everyone's lives, even for asexual individuals, broadly speaking, they have to live within a sexualized world. So sex is still massively important to them. I think it's yeah, a lack of awareness and maybe a, a lack of wanting to engage and think about these groups of people in sexualized settings. Yeah, that all makes sense. And I think part of it too might also stem from people trying to be protectionist and denying people their sexuality and denying them sex education Never turns out well for anybody. But this has all been super fascinating, Liam. Thank you so much for sharing this research. And I look forward to continuing our conversation in the next episode and talking all about kink in the digital age. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your book, Kink in the Digital Age? Your listeners can go to Oxford University Press and Kink in the Digital Age is there. And my new book, The Power of BDSM, which is an edited collection of academics from across the world on different components of kink. Can I send you the, the discount code, Justin, to put in the description? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I'm on Twitter, at Liam Wignall, but I don't know how long that will last. I have a blue sky, but I don't know what I'm doing on there. Yeah, if you type in my name, you'll find me in various places. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm most active on Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>